Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is July 7th, 2016, and uh, today we have the pleasure of sitting down with um, Dr. Ryan McGraw. He is uh, now full professor of systematic theology at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and we're going to be talking with him about a little booklet that he has written, and it's put out um, in the Cultivating Biblical Godliness series. And the title of the booklet is, Is the Trinity practical and we're going to get to that discussion in just a minute um some things that are happening around the seminary that uh, i'd like to alert the listeners to we have two um educational ventures that we're doing this summer we have the summer institute uh, where dr chad van dixhorn will be coming in uh, to the seminary to teach on um, pastoral care care in the westminster assembly and then the following week, uh, Dr. Uh, Nick Wilborn will be uh, on the on campus uh, to do his Southern Presbyterian Theology class. This is something that is done every year here at the seminary. And so uh, if you're not registered for those and, and do have the opportunity to attend either or both of them, um, one or the other, um, I encourage you to go to our website, gpts.edu, and you can read all the information regarding both of those classes. You can take them for continuing education credit, or you can audit them. Um, and so um, go to the website, gpts.edu, and that all the information for those classes are available. In addition to that, um, Dr. McGraw, who will um, in a few minutes probably talk about his reform scholasticism class that he's doing uh, here at the seminary in August. And so I'm going to be in that class, and I'm look, very much looking forward to it. And so we'll talk about that in just a minute as well. If you want to find out more information about the podcast, you can go to our website, confessingourhope.com. Additionally, uh, remember the monthly uh, signature program of the, of the seminary, Faith and Practice with Dr. Piper. If you have questions, theology, practical Christian living questions, uh, you can submit those. There's a form there on the website, and it's very simple. And write in if you do, um, and we use your, pro- your question on the air. Uh, you will receive a $10 coupon to the Banner of Truth store uh, to get books. So it's book money, a uh, very easy way to get that. So those are some of the things that are happening. And again, confessingourhope.com has all of the details for these various items. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking, we are talking with Dr. McGraw this morning uh, on this little booklet, Is the Trinity Practical? And if you know anything about Dr. McGraw, this is a subject that's near and dear to his heart. So uh, Dr. McGraw, welcome again to the program. You've been on many times, and so um, look forward to our little discussion today. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. Why don't you tell the listeners quickly, um, the Reform Scholasticism class, uh, when it is, and and maybe a summary of what what you're going to be doing. Well, basically, uh, the purpose of the course on Reform Scholasticism is to deal with international Reform theology from about 1560 to about 1800, maybe give or take a little bit. And the reason for this is this is the classic period of Reform systematic theology. What many people don't realize is almost all of the systematic texts were written in Latin. And so this is a way of introducing students to the research methodology needed to study this time period, but also introducing them to the content and international character of Reformed theology in order to give people a more classic, traditional foundation for Reformed dogmatics. And basically that happens um, through getting into this, this classic literature and teaching men how and why they'd want to study it. And I think one of the the great payoffs is that this material ends up giving greater theological stability 
um, in terms of going back to a classic period where most of the literature is not familiar to people anymore and not available uh, to people without facility in Latin. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other aspect is that this time period uh, gives us great insight into our doctrinal standards as well. So in a sense, I'm, I'm trying to give the students uh, the ability they need to study this material and separate it from what they're doing in the ministry to do historical studies, but then also how to use it in the pastorate and combine it with what they're doing in teaching. Very good. I was actually going to ask, how does this help the pastor um, in his day-to-day preparation and work? And you just somewhat answered that, I guess. A uh, quick question about the class. Um, you mentioned Latin. Is it necessary for the students to know Latin prior to taking this? Um, I'm actually going to be teaching the class here at Greenville with uh, largely with THM students, and I won't be requiring Latin for them, uh, certainly not for auditors as well or MDiv students. Um, Lord willing, I'll be teaching it at uh, Puritan Seminary at mm. some point for their new PhD program. And I will be requiring uh, Latin for PhD students. So it just depends. Very good. So. All right, so that's a little bit of when it, um, what Dr. McGraw is going to be doing. I know he's also traveling and conferences coming up and whatnot. What, what are the dates of this class again? Uh, August 16th through 19th. Very good. And that's here at the seminary. Now, today we're going to be talking more specifically about his little booklet, Is the Trinity Practical? And... Um, the, the thing that I love about these booklets that have, are put out by the Cultivating Biblical Godliness series that's from Reformation Heritage Books is that they're succinct, they're relatively small, they're, you can read it in a very short period of time, but that doesn't take away from the depth of the information and material that's contained within it. It's just con- more concise, compacted information. And of course, the subject of the Trinity is uh, it, it, extremely vital uh, necessity of our Christian heritage doctrine, and without it, we really don't have a Christian faith. And so, first, Dr. McGraw, how did you come to write this book? I know your love for the subject, but um, how did you come to write it, and then uh, what was your goal um, throughout? Well, in in some ways, there are three or four things that I try to teach and spread in as many ways as I can, either in the classroom or in sermons or, in this case, in writing. And those three or four things come down to communion with the triune God, uh, self-denial, how to retain Scripture in our minds and in our hearts, and preaching and prayer meetings. And the link between those is especially with the Trinity and self-denial, really pressing uh, deep-seated love for Jesus Christ and treating the whole Christ as the object of our faith— and not simply looking for him for the forgiveness of sins and justification, but every single aspect of the Christian life uh, from its inception to glorification. And the Trinity in particular enables us to do that better, uh, but also to love God for who he is, for our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in all of these things, I think these are key needs in the church today, and you'll notice that they've, they've all turned into booklets in this series now, and that's by design and not by accident. Many of the listeners may recognize I've tried to preach some of this material in, in sermon form in uh, many of their churches, and again, that's by design. I think what we need is uh, we, we need people 
who know and love the triune God more fervently and do so in a way that focuses and centers on the person and work of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. And this needs to have practical effects in denying ourselves, being committed to the spread of the gospel through preaching and prayer meetings, um, and and really knowing our Bibles. Maybe a good inroad into this. One of uh, the, the best compliments I've ever received in my pastorate, uh, at least my, my most recent one, was when a woman came up to me after an evening service, after sitting under my ministry for three years, and said, I finally get your ministry. You want us to do two things. You want us to love Jesus and read our Bibles. <laughs> well, basically, this, this issue on the Trinity, uh, retaining Scripture, self-denial, and prayer meetings all hover around those two things. Uh, so in essence, that's that's where this comes from. And maybe one other brief comment is, is I think that uh, with the doctrine of the Trinity, there's a lot of Christians out there who believe that the doctrine is absolutely vital to the Christian faith. It's what we call a, a fundamental article of the faith. But if you begin prodding and asking some of these people, why is this the case— then they may, as, as I once did, struggle to articulate. And I think the answer ends up being uh, that the gospel itself in Scripture is explained in terms of the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. And the gospel is ultimately to the glory of the Father through the Son by the Spirit as we come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And there's a, a number of New Testament passages that, that bring that out. So this book digests some of that, largely around Ephesians 2.18, uh, which is a great Trinitarian statement, mm-hmm. and tries to introduce the subject and press more of a devotional uh, emphasis that touches faith and practice. Yeah, that's it, it, a really great summary, and I, I mentioned to you off-air um, that I usually— uh, well, I always enjoy interviewing you because generally I don't have to do hardly anything— he, Dr. McGraw always goes where I'm already thinking anyway, and he just answered the question that I jotted down, why is the doctrine of the Trinity so vital to the Christian faith? And he just answered the question for me. So that's, it's always helpful in, 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 in talking uh, with you on these things. Um, let's back up a little bit and, and talk about the importance of the Trinity as in our culture when we have um, a number of, of religious organizations, cults, um, who deny this fundamental doctrine, and and does this booklet help maybe uh, flesh that out and deal with that um, somewhat? It it would not as much in a um, apologetic sense, uh, and what I mean by that is is not um, in terms of giving a lot of proof for mm-hmm. the doctrine of the Trinity itself but in an indirect way, in the sense that this booklet demonstrates why in the minds of, of New Testament authors, and in this case especially Paul and Ephesians, why the Trinity or God's triunity is inseparable from the gospel. Uh, in other words, if you pull this thread out, the whole gospel falls apart and there's nothing. Uh, what I find very interesting is is back in the 17th century, one thing that people don't often realize is that uh, 17th century Arminians professed the Trinity, but they didn't believe it was necessary for salvation. 
partly because they didn't believe it was practical. And I guess my, my fear here is it's one thing when a Mormon comes to your door, Jehovah's Witness, and start arguing with them about the deity of Christ or the personality of mm-hmm. the Spirit. Uh, but the big question ends up becoming, so what? What difference does it make? Well, if, if we reduce the gospel simply to a statement that, uh, to the effect of Jesus died for my sins and I'm forgiven, then I could see why you don't need the Trinity. Uh, because basically the, the 17th century Sicinians believed that, who were Unitarians. Yep. Um, the Armenians did as well, though in a very different sense than, than the uh, um, Reformed at the time. And, and 17th century Armenians are very different than the people you're probably familiar with today uh, by that name. And I think well, what we need to recognize is the, the real question is, how does the Father save me? How does the Son save me? How does the Spirit save me? And to give just a brief answer to that, the Father in Ephesians 1 saves me by his sovereign election by choosing me in Christ before time began. The Son saves me by becoming man and living for me and dying for me and being raised on the third day for me. And, of course, ascending into heaven as well. But Paul stresses his blood and his death there in particular. And the Spirit saves me as the seal and down payment of my redemption. And that means that basically he's taking all that the Father has planned and all that the Son has purchased, and he's applying it. And he's making it a reality. So you have a sovereign Father, a sovereign Son, a sovereign Spirit, not uh, working in, in three distinct acts, but in three distinct ways in the same actions of God. So there's one God who saves us, and if we take out the deity or personality of any of the persons, there's no gospel left and there's no hope for us. And so we need to be careful as Christians that we don't uh, speak of the gospel primarily in terms of a list of benefits, but we must speak of the gospel primarily in terms of divine persons who save us and particularly the person of the Son. Just one last illustration with that that I have in the book. I found it striking years ago, reading part two of Pilgrim's Progress, where uh, the pilgrim's wife is converted, and she takes the children on the journey to the celestial city. And there's one part where she is uh, (coughs) visiting a character named Prudence who decides to catechize her children. And she asks the youngest child, how does the Father save you? How does the Son save you? How does the Spirit save you? The youngest child in a Puritan family in the 17th century, and in this case in in the home of a man who had no formal theological education at all, was able to explain how divine persons Mm. save them. And uh, and I think that that type of mentality is what we need. And in dealing with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, really in dealing with ourselves and our own hearts, we really need to, to actively depend upon and worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for who they are and what they've done. It's funny you mentioned Pilgrim's Progress. We just talked about this the other day. I, I, th- I feel like after all these interviews I've done for the last two years and my former pastor and others, um, I don't need to read the book. Because I've heard the whole book in different ways, shape, or form since I've ever, since for years now. (laughs) 
But no, I haven't read it. Um, shame on me. But, and but just, just as a note, I know, to, uh, I know what you're going to say. Here note it comes. to listeners: my my uh, young children have read it about six times just to make Bill feel really bad. <laughs> well, I'm trying to listen to it through audiobook um, and it redeem some of my windshield time um, in some capacity. But uh, anyway, well, this is a very helpful book, obviously, because uh, you deal with the core issues. Um, I love what you said on page three of the book, that the authors of the New Testament can consistently describe the Christian faith and life in Trinitarian terms. God's triunity is the thread that weaves the New Testament together. If we pull out this thread, then we unravel all of its teachings. And so you, you, you approach this subject in three ways. Um, first, you start with, does the Trinity matter? And then you move from there to what does the Trinitarian devotion look like, which it, for the average Christian, and, and, and I consider myself the average Christian, I want to know, how, how can I get my hands around it? Um, I know it matters, but what do I do with it? And then third, how can we apply the Trinity practically? And I think for the benefit of the listeners, maybe we can just go through those three areas and uh, talk about them in summary fashion and, um, and then end with the, the very practical element, which is something that I usually try to do on this podcast as often as possible is to, to marry the, the academic, the theological, to the practical Christian living. Um, and so um, I'm very glad that this book does that. So let's start with the Does the Trinity Matter section that you have in the book. Summarize. Okay. Well, in, in, some way, in some sense, in terms of Does the Trinity Matter, I feel like I've already uh, touched on that mm-hmm. pretty significantly. And to summarize, basically the Trinity or the doctrine of the Trinity is the uh, thread that runs through the entire gospel. And if it were pulled out, the entire fabric of biblical Christianity would fall apart. So does it matter? Yes. Uh, The greatest New Testament proof of the doctrine of the Trinity is that the New Testament never proves the doctrine. Yeah. Uh, Basically... Paul and and Peter and and to some extent John in a different way uh, and and many others in the New Testament simply assume the doctrine and describe the gospel in terms of the work of of the persons. One thing that I think is helpful to keep in mind is um, after readers are introduced to a text like Ephesians two eighteen through him we come to the Father by one Spirit uh, to start reading the New Testament and looking for those types of emphases and the appeal to the persons. And I've usually found that people are surprised what they discover. Um, In order to to flesh this out more, I actually have another book that I've written that's not published yet that goes through uh, just 20 of these triadic passages in the New Testament. Um, and, and I deal with the Old Testament as well, and that's another story for another time. Uh, but, but basically trying to make some of this even more explicit than what I have here in short, about three-page chapters. Uh, Lord willing, that'll be published by the uh, Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals in conjunction with the uh, Meet the Puritan site that Excellent. I contribute to. Um, so that will flesh this out even further and really answer this first point in more detail and hopefully in a way that uh, somebody can take and read a three-page segment without much time and still profit from these, these issues. So why is it important? Why does it matter? Um, well, 
one, because this is who God is, and our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the gospel is very God-centered. And two, it shouldn't surprise us then that God explains His work in saving sinners explicitly in Trinitarian terms. In this section, you, you talk about the relationship of the Trinity and the Church, of course, the unity of the Church, and you make the statement towards the end that the triune God is the basis for the Apostle Paul's teaching, and this is coming from the Ephesians 2, 18 um, section where, where you unpack that, um, and you say the triune God is the basis for the Apostle Paul's teaching on the peace and unity of the Church. Why? Well, basically, what what Paul does frequently, not only in Ephesians 2, but in Ephesians 4, and also in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, is to appeal to the doctrine of the Trinity to address the unity and diversity of the Church. Mm-hmm. So uh, if, if I can begin with the, the two other texts and work my way back, um, in Ephesians 4, the idea is that there is uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, um, one Spirit who dwells in us, one God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. Um, And on the basis of this, this unified work of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Um, And then he works into the diversity among believers in spiritual gifts. So as Thomas Manton, the Puritan, once put it, when we are exercising unity and diversity in the body of Christ, we're imitating the Godhead. So in other words, not just imitating God's ethical character, but imitating God's unity, God's diversity. Um, I think that's what Paul's doing there, and he's doing the same thing with spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. In chapter 2, what he's dealing with is the division of Jews and Gentiles, or previous division, He describes the Gentiles as previously being without hope, without Christ, without God in the world, literally atheists, um, strangers from the covenant promises. But now they they who are afar off have been brought near. Mm. And then the Jews, those who are believing Jews, that is, have actually come to Christ as well. And so what God has done is he's broken down the enmity between man and God, and between man and man. And so Jews and Gentiles who are previously at war with one another or had animosity against one another are now in one church. And they also worship one God. And Paul actually appeals then to the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which he's already introduced to us in chapter 1, to now explain the unifying principle that brings Jews and Gentiles together is twofold. First... I believe it's around uh, verse 11, if I'm not mistaken, um, where he says he himself is our peace, referring to Christ, Mm -hmm. which serves as a a banner over the whole text. And then verse 17, I'm sorry, 18, where he's dealing with uh, this great Trinitarian statement. In a sense, he's, he's describing the effect of Christ as our peace upon Jews and Gentiles. Christ is taking us somewhere, the des- destination, as it were, towards which he's taking us is the Father. So through him we come to the Father, and the means we do it by is by one Spirit. And so how can we be united as Jews and Gentiles in one church? Because by one Spirit, which we share in common, we come through one Christ, who we equally trust in, 
to one God and Father who's over us all. And that's something of what Paul's doing. So, so in all three of those texts that I mentioned, especially the chapter 2 text, Paul is actually appealing to the high doctrine of God's triunity to promote unity and purity in the church. Um, and so we should ask ourselves, I think, uh, it's interesting to me to ask the question, if, if you could, if, if your church faced division and you had to address a way to promote peace and purity and unity in the church, what would be the first thing that you would come to? Hmm. I'm convinced, based on reading Paul's letters, the first two things that he would come to, which are actually intertwined and interrelated, are baptism and the Trinity. And those are the two things he tends to to appeal to. I say they're related, of course, because we're baptized in the name of the triune God. So it shouldn't surprise us then that Paul appeals to baptism, say in Ephesians 4, um, even as he appeals to the Trinity and deals with unity and diversity in the church. Yeah, both uh, the, 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 the issue of unity in the church, obviously, is a very important subject. Uh, I, I, I it's almost, I would say it's impossible to read Paul in the New Testament without seeing that time and time and time and time again. Um, related even to John, uh, to Christ's uh, high priestly prayer, John 17, um, this whole idea. And it's, and it's not a wish, really. It's not an issue because of the Trinity and its effects upon the people of God. It's not really a wish. We are united. Uh, we are united in Christ uh, through the work of the Spirit to being brought to the Father as you've mentions. It's a critical issue, um, but it doesn't mean we look alike, necessarily. Uh, we have diversity in the church, and I think you touched on that. I don't remember exactly where, maybe in the beginning of this section, but there is diversity within the unity, and, and, mm-hmm. and I think some people are confused as to what that means. Maybe you could help us. Well, I mean, part of it would be that um, believers are not simply clones of one another, uh, for that matter, not even clones of Christ, though we're being conformed to his right. image ethically. One, one way to look at it, and this will, will weave together uh, some of these Trinitarian themes maybe beyond what I do in the booklet, but um, Christ was filled with the Spirit without measure, as John 3 tells us. Mm-hmm. Paul describes believers as receiving a measure of faith. And, and he's talking about spiritual gifts in Romans 12. So uh, really a measure of the Spirit. We could say Christ has the Spirit without measure. We have the Spirit by measure. Christ alone has all the gifts and all the graces of the Spirit. Not a single individual believer has that. The church together corporately possesses all the gifts and the graces mm-hmm. of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And one day, when we see Christ as he is, First uh, John 3 tells us the, the glorious truth that we'll be like mm-hmm. him, and we will have all the graces of the Spirit. But what this stresses is that we, we glorify God not simply as individuals being renewed in God's image, but we glorify God as the church. We need each other, in other words, in order to reflect the glory of the Trinity. Yeah, also all the gifts are working. Uh, the Spirit gives different gifts to different people, uh, the text that you just mentioned, and when they're working as they should, then there's a strong bond of unity that exists uh, as a result. Uh, when they're not working as they should, then you have this 
factions or diversity that right. that is not helpful. And I think Paul addresses that even in First Corinthians. You know, in and the not just section. not just gifts, but I mean, we have men and women, we have children and adults, yep. we have people in different places and walks of life, we have people with different uh, intellectual abilities, we have people with different physical abilities. All these different things play into uh, the church and make the church what it is. And what uh, what Paul's doing, at least with the doctrine of the Trinity, is appealing to the idea. Mm-hmm. that this diversity in the church is equally as good as the unity of the church, and we need both. Yep. So they're not being pitted against each other, but they're actually working with each other to accomplish the end results. Now you turn uh, from, I hesitate to say the theory or the theoretical, because it's really not theoretical, um, and all biblical teaching divorced from practical application is really a, an abortion. Um, and so you... you very, uh, in a very helpful way, you turn from what you mentioned in the first section, does the Trinity matter, um, to what does it look like to have Trinitarian devotion? And you've already told the story of John Bunyan, so you can't go back and do that one again and further embarrass me. Um, but what does Trinitarian devotion look like? Let me, let me state it in, in two ways, really one statement, one example, in order to, to illustrate. Mm-hmm. This will spill over in the last section of yep. practice, too. Yep. But, uh, but basically, by way of statement, I think we need to understand how God works. Um, so when we think of God's action towards us, whatever that action may be, it's always from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. When we approach God, it's always by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Now, I've been speaking about salvation, but this is actually much broader. So, for example, with creation, uh, God speaks and says, let there be light. Well, John 1 undoubtedly interprets that in terms of uh, Christ being the eternal Logos, or Word of God. Mm-hmm. And so all things are made through him and for him, as Paul says in Colossians 1. Um, and in John 1, that, that nothing came to be apart from him. And so you put all of that together. When God speaks and says, let there be light, he's creating the heavens and the earth through his eternal Son. Um, but then you also see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And the idea is the earth was without form and void, and now things are ordered. Not that the Father and Son are somehow disorderly, but it's the Spirit's uh, function within the work of the triune God to perfect every divine work. So you have the Son, uh, the Father planning, the Son performing, the Spirit perfecting. That's a simple way to think through it. Uh, that's why when you come to redemption, the Father plans, the Son purchases, the Spirit applies. And beyond that, even when we speak of in our, our Trinitarian theology of uh, the Father being begotten of none, the Spirit being eternally begotten, or the, I'm sorry, the Son being eternally begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeding eternally from the Father and the Son. Well, Basically, what we're doing is reading the New Testament and saying the reason why God acts the way he does is that this is who he is. There's no subordination of the persons. There's no inequality among the persons, but there is an eternal order of relationships between the persons. And this is why God creates the way he does. This is why 
uh, the Father sends the Son, Christ becomes incarnate, the Spirit conceives him in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Uh, this is why uh, the Father elects us, Christ dies for us, the Spirit fills our hearts and brings us to Christ. Um, and you can go on and on throughout the whole Christian life. Now, that, that's the principle we need to grasp. How does God work? Who is God? And how does this reflect our relationship to him, or I should say affect our relationship to him? Um, the practical expression is, is to ask a question such as, uh, what does this look like in, in prayer? Mm -hmm. uh, people mm -hmm. will often ask, um, can we pray to the Son? Can we pray to the Spirit? Now, the basic answer is prayer is an act of, of worship, and if the Son and the Spirit are God equal with the Father, then uh, they deserve all acts of worship. So yes, we should, we should be able to pray to the Son. We should be able to pray to the Spirit. We don't, however, want to lose the texture of how God reveals himself as triune either. And think about how this, the, the young children in your congregation learn how to pray, mm -hmm. or should anyway, in, in light of the Bible. You learn the Lord's Prayer. What do we learn? Our Father. Our Father in Who heaven. Our heart in heaven, right whose name do we pray in? In the name of Christ, right? And, and we're not just making bare mention of his name, but in obedience to his command and confidence on his promises, we ask mercy for his sake, and that's larger catechism. Um, and then who are we praying for? The Spirit. How much more, Luke says, shall the Father give the Spirit to those who ask him? Um, and and the Luke's version of Christ's teaching there, the Spirit, is, is presumably synonymous with Matthew's version, which says every good thing. Right. Well, the Spirit conveys every good thing to us and summarizes the substance of every good thing God gives us. Uh, for it's through the Spirit we receive God's good, good gifts. So what do we do when we pray? We pray to the Father in Jesus' name, by and for the Spirit. Hmm. Well, just the simple biblical teaching on prayer would make us good devotional Trinitarians. Hmm. Maybe we're not self-conscious about it. We need to be. We need to think about it. But sometimes when we ask these other questions, well, well do we pray to the Son? Do we pray to the Spirit? We, we um, are detaching them from the general pattern the New Testament gives us. Yep. Not that it's wrong to pray to the other persons, but, but if you're thinking about it, if you're praying to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, you're reflecting the fact that, that the Father saves you through the Son, by the Spirit, and you come uh, to the Father by the Son, or through the Son, by the Spirit, and everything, mm -hmm. and your prayer is an act of worship and dependence on all three persons. Yeah, very well said. And um, some of the listeners may remember uh, a recent faith and practice when Dr. Piper actually talked about this very question of prayer and these these issues. So it's good and, and helpful reminder to, to remember in prayer, especially as, as an example, the Trinitarian focus and work uh, in our prayers. The Spirit perfects our prayers, brings them to the Father. Um, all these f uh, matters are in view. Let me ask a, a sort of a sideways, maybe not a, it's a, maybe a little off the track, but I think it does connect in some way. Um, in our worship, corporate worship, how distinctly do you think uh, the church, or how consciously do you think the church is about the focus of Trinitarian worship, and, 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 if, and maybe explain what that even is? 
Well, um, and I, the reason I asked the question is because I think if we're modeling it in our corporate worship to the people, then it will help them practically, personally live it in their daily lives between the Sundays. Um, right. And that's why I asked that question. In some ways, um, as you were saying this, my uh, my gut answer was to say it, it depends on the pastor. Sure. In other words, uh, how does the pastor understand his dependence on the triune God mm-hmm. and leading? And not, not just the pastor, but many churches have, have ruling elders participating in prayer and, and leading in the worship service. And a simple thing to start with is um, in, in the worship service to begin with prayer, do we pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit? Do we, uh, for example, when we think of the Father, recognize the privilege of our adoption when we come into the presence of God? Again, think of the shorter catechism of the Lord's Prayer, those who are familiar with it. What do we uh, mean when we say our Father? Well, we come as children to a Father who is able and ready to help us. We have uh, a right to all the privileges of the sons of God Mm. because Christ's inheritance is our inheritance. And we need to reflect this in our worship explicitly to the Father in corporate prayer. And, and the uh, expressions of that vary. The best way to do it is, al- is always to draw from Scripture itself and right. leading in public prayer, mm-hmm. but be explicit about it. And sometimes um, I'll come to, to teaching in a moment, which is really the other part of this, mm-hmm. but we need to tell people what we're doing. Um, not so much in a prayer when you're not giving a sermon, but, but in instruction, tell people. Notice my appeal to the Father, to the Son, and the Spirit. And people will start picking it up quickly and, and realizing it. And then when you're doing your prayers and you're praying to the Father, um, thinking about the benefits of, of adoption and, and all the uh, blessings of our inheritance in Christ, um, that will stand out easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, with, with the Son, if we are recognizing that, that prayer occurs in the name of Christ, we're confessing a lot of things. Uh, one, we're saying that we're sinners deserving God's judgment, liable to his wrath and curse if Jesus Christ did not live and die and be mm. raised for us. Mm. And without Christ, we have no hope. And so when we pray in the name of Christ, it's an act of worship. And we, we don't necessarily have to use those words in Jesus' name, but if we don't pray in the name of Jesus in, in concept and in practice, we can't pray at all. And so we, we actively worship Jesus Christ um, and all that means. He's, he's righteous in his life. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's humiliated. He's exalted. He has three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Um, he's, he's exercising these offices as incarnate, uh, in, in his humiliation and his exaltation, according to both natures. I mean, the, in other words, I'm just scratching the surface. There's right. so much to draw from. And he secures our entrance into God's, pre- into the Father's presence where we bring our prayers. And he's yeah. the great high priest, and the reason we can now enter not just in worship on the Lord's Day, but any time is because of him. So you confess sins in worship, you're, you're actively dependent upon Christ, uh, you receive the call to worship, you're coming in the name of Christ and, and have the ability to call upon the Father. Um, but then, then just look at the Spirit. Again, 
Um, as, as Owen famously said, and as many have quoted him saying, uh, if, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we might as well burn our burn Bibles. Burn our Bibles, that's right. We need the Spirit of God to be with us in the worship service or everything's lost. Yeah, I know where, so. where I'm pastoring, and many churches do this as well in corporate worship, that they model this uh, idea uh, in the invocation uh, where where you're calling on God to meet with his people, we to bless his name and, and, and exalt him. And then in our prayers of thanksgiving, we're acknowledging again that by the Spirit's help, because of Christ's righteousness, uh, God is the good giver of all. Uh, he's the giver of all the good gifts that we have, all the simple things of this life, our daily bread. That the Lord's Prayer highlights that. And then in the prayer of illumination before this, before the sermon, we're asking for God to send us His Spirit that He promised to do, to illumine our minds and help us understand His Word as it's proclaimed. And that's not just for the pastor. I mean, I'm very comforted by the verse that you mentioned earlier in Luke, uh, um, and it's one that I will often. Uh, uh, appeal to in prayer before I come into the pulpit, because God has promised to give me a spirit. And so I ask for that, and he gives it because he's promised to do it, and um, to help me in proclaiming his word. So it's all there. Right. Um, but I think oftentimes, as you've already mentioned, that our people don't consciously see that from the pastor or the ruling elders that are help leading. And so they're disconnected from it. And, and to explain it like that is, I think, very helpful. Yeah, and we do need to explain things, too. And and it can be very simple. Like if I'm preaching on Ephesians, let's say I'm preaching on verse 11 through 22 of Ephesians 2. I've got a strong Trinitarian statement in verse 18 yep. about our redemption and our unity in, as a church. And then I've got another statement in verse 22 that mentions all three persons. I may not preach a separate sermon just on those two verses and just make them Trinitarian sermons, which which I have done at different points, um, I may be preaching the flow of thought through the whole thing, but it, it, it may be just simple to say, notice um, all three persons in this verse and this verse. Mm-hmm. Why does Paul do this? How does this fit into the argument of verses 11 through 22? And then just explain the gospel in terms of the persons. And it doesn't have to be a whole sermon on it, but you're, as soon as you start pointing these things out, people are going to pick them up and, yep. and find patterns. Um, another thing is in our, our teaching, this isn't, uh, well, let me say, I, th- I think one of the problems we face as preachers, especially if we're committed to preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, which is a good thing to do, um, is is we get so hung up with the exegesis of the text. In other words, what does the text say and mean? How do I outline it? How do I present it? That, that never happens. You know, we... Yeah, it never happens. <laughs> we, uh, we lose our sense of obligation to think like Christians. What do you mean by that? And I'm going to explain. Okay. Um, of course you are. I should have known better. I, I think... Well, we need to recognize when we look at the New Testament model of preaching, let's be honest with ourselves. We don't have a model anywhere in the New Testament of an apostle preaching verse by verse through the book of Hosea. You're right. You're right. Um, he or, mentioned Hosea, by the way, just for, he didn't just pull that out of the air, I think. We, 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 were, we were talking, talking earlier that. off air about my next series that I'm, I'm thinking of doing, and I was picking Dr. McGraw's brain uh, for help books and whatnot, and, and he's always a great resource, and I, and I love the input I get from him. But anyway, sorry about that. So, so the issue is, 
uh, let's say you're preaching Genesis, Hosea, something like that. And again, I think it's a good thing to do um, and should be our normal pattern to preach through books of Scripture. But New Testament theology and apostolic preaching sets the bar for how we need to preach and how we need to understand. If it, if it doesn't, what does? That's right. um, I mean, is it modern textual criticism? Is it modern exegesis? What is it? And, and in other words, I think we need to go back to the Scripture pattern for preaching. What this means is you need to do your homework, you need to exegete your text, you need to outline it, you need to let the authority of the text speak to the people, but you need to think like a Christian while you're doing it. And let me just illustrate what that means. Mm. If you're preaching on Psalm 1, and this is an example I use in class with students, you don't just say, okay, here's what it means to meditate on God's law and, and be a godly man and not be a wicked man and, and stand before God versus uh, be judged. You're a Christian. You know how this is possible and how this works in light of the New Testament. You may know more than the Old Testament saints did, but you know you come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And you can't preach any part of the Bible without teaching people that that's the case. So how do I live a life as a godly man? What do I do when I, I look in the mirror of Psalm 1 and I'm convicted because of how far short that I fall? Yeah. Well, I see the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God and the brightness of the Father's glory. And he's reflecting to me perfectly what it is to be the man mm -hmm. of Psalm 1. Yeah. And the only reason I can even think about Psalm 1 is because Jesus has lived a perfectly righteous life on my behalf, and he's died and borne the curse of my violation of Psalm 1. And now I can come into the presence of God. But how do I do that? The Spirit must work in my heart, must work faith in me, and without the Spirit in my heart, I can't know Jesus. And now the Spirit is taking that image of Christ that is given to me in Psalm 1, and he's rewriting it on my heart, so now I can honor the Father by going back and meditating upon God's law, shunning ungodly company and counsel, and walking with God. Mm. And you see what I'm doing is I'm still explaining the text. Yeah, watch out. You're almost preaching but, it. But I need to do it as a Christian. Yeah. You know, it's a great example, and I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, because the tendency is when we—and we're probably running a little off— course here but but the tendency uh, in the pulpit and, and i'm speaking for as a pastor and a man who preaches every week as you do often dr mcgraw is to if we don't consciously do this we we slip right into moralism and and we lose the the thrust of the gospel which is we're incapable of keeping any of these things without the spirit in some measure helping us and giving us the grace to do it and if we don't go there in our sermons and preaching then we've taught people that they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps they can make it happen on their own and it's moralism and it loses the gospel entirely and so the gospel is in psalm one it's there it, but if you preach it like a christian as you just preached it <laughs> yeah you still need to look at hebrew terms you still need to look That's at right. structure yep. you still need to understand what what did the author mean in his context and his time as much as you can and in, in a standalone psalm yep but um so i'm not negating any of that no yeah one of your you need to talk and think and explain um as someone who's already read the new testament one of your our, a mutual friend of ours um first time he heard me teach um commented on this he, he said you're, you're dangerous or perilously close to moralism and and remember the centrality of christ and the spirit and the gospel thrust throughout and 
and it was a helpful uh, correction. Uh, it wasn't, I wouldn't say a rebuke, but it was a good correction and helped me think. This was prior to going to seminary and before I was really immersed in a lot of these things. Well, those are very important subjects, and we kind of ran a little bit off the book on that. But let's uh, turn the corner uh, to the last section where, where you talk about the practicality of the Trinity and how can we apply the Trinity practically. And I think in the book you have three suggestions, well, I don't know, suggestions is probably not the right word, but uh, three um, recommendations, that's probably not the right word. But anyway, you have three. <laughs> Whatever word they are. Do you want me to tell you the first one? Uh, if we would develop a Trinitarian piety, then we must begin thinking about everything that God does in Trinitarian terms. Now, practically, how does that, what does that look like? Well, um, for, for a pastor, it would look something very much like what I just described with yep. Psalm 1. Yep. Um, for, say, a ruling elder helping lead a worship service, it would look something very much like what I described about public prayer, um, you know, and thinking in those terms and leading people. Um, by the way, I, I think my, um, my five-year-old offers good Trinitarian prayers, so this is not, you know... Uh, this is Calvin? Um, no, this is Jonathan. So you got um, o- Owen, Calvin, and... Okay, I can't... So I, I, I don't think this is... Um, something that has to be so theologically difficult um, that the average person and even children can't grasp. We can pray to the Father in Jesus' name and ask for the Spirit, and a five-year-old can do that. Um, you know, that's, that's not the same thing as giving some sort of philosophical or metaphysical explanation of the Trinity, that's which right. you're going right. to do in vain. But you can say, um, though... God's triunity is above my reason. It's not contrary to it. And I can actively depend upon the persons. So we need to think in terms of the persons. Uh, The book that I mentioned that Lord Willing is coming out with with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals um, really goes through creation, redemption, glorification, deals with triadic passages in five different stages of Christ's life, uh, deals with the doctrine of the church, spiritual gifts, prayer meetings, uh, benedictions, and public worship, um, and, and each of these areas, and you kind of get an idea of what I mean by, by thinking in Trinitarian terms. Um, and, and the best part about this is I, I don't have to grasp at straws or make any of this up. You just have to read the New Testament uh, with with an eye for these types of statements and these types of passages. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've never actually counted them, but at the end of the, the book, I've got an appendix, uh, not this book, but the other one, and, and this is just one example of what goes on there, where I just went through and found all the triadic passages in the New Testament, listed them out by quotation. And um, it's about 20 pages worth of Scripture mm-hmm. quotes. Mm-hmm. So it's all over the place. Yeah, and if that we, doesn't, we think if it doesn't prove more than this, it proves it's extremely vital. Um, yeah. If it's that many references in the New Testament, the second uh, practical aspect is you mentioned that the triune nature of God sets the pattern for unity and diversity in the church. Now we've already kind of we've already talked about that a little bit, but maybe just summarize. Yeah, I probably won't add much more other than um, we're we're one as believers in Christ but we're also diverse in terms of gifts and graces. And so we are uh, sanctified in Jesus Christ, not only individually, but corporately 
And uh, it's not simply the Spirit working in our hearts to make us like Christ, but the Spirit doing that uh, with us together as a church and using us in one another's lives to function as a church and to press on to glory. You mentioned the church reflects the plurality of persons in the Godhead through the diversity of our members. And, and that's just, you know, experience tells us that. You know, we look at the church, right. we, we are diverse. Um, and, you know, maybe something to add there as well is uh, sometimes in history there's been a tendency to look for uh, analogies of the Trinity in nature and say, for example, there's, there's three parts of, of a, a human being or of an egg or um, uh, three states of matter or whatever else, and we see vestiges of the Trinity in, in everything. Uh, vestiges comes from a Latin word meaning footprints. So literally there's there's footprints. Well, I, I think this point about unity and diversity illustrates how mm. that should be limited. Um, God leaves vestiges or footprints of himself everywhere he is, which is everywhere in everything. But remember that nature is not as clear as Scripture. So we shouldn't be looking for uh, solid liquid gas being a picture of the Trinity. We should look for things like uh, there are unifying principles in nature and there's diversity. I know what it is to look at a cypress tree, and yet if I look at a hundred cypress trees, each one is different. There are not a hundred persons in the Trinity, uh, but there's unity and diversity in God and there's unity and diversity in what he makes. And so we need to have a broad, generalized picture of this in terms of the church, as well as in terms of, of uh, revelation more broadly. Yep. And we couldn't even understand the natural revelation of God without the special revelation of the scriptures uh, interpreting that, uh, the natural, uh, through the lens of the special. Um, you answered, I think, this question I was going to ask, uh, because of the diversity of the members in the church— and the experience has just taught us that we don't have to elaborate. Is there diversity among the members, at least in the economical trinity, uh, between the Father, Son, and the Spirit? They're, uni- they're one, but is there diversity? Um, you know, to, to put it theologically first, there's a unity of essence and a diversity of personal properties. Yep. Um, what that means is that there's one God not that there are three persons uh, somehow sharing three parts of the Godhead and passing around deity, but the one God is three persons. There's no um, distinction of being or essence or ontology, however you want to describe it, among the persons. Uh, but there is a distinction of personal relationship. Yep. So the, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, meaning he has no beginning or, or end, but he does uh, uh, come, as it were, uh, from and through the Father. And then the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father through the Son and from the Father and the Son. The Scripture describes uh, both ways. And, um, and I think that what we're talking about here is, is the relationships of the distinction. Maybe one thing I should mention is a, a practical issue. There's a lot of talk on uh, blogs right now about complementarianism and subordination yep. and people trying to argue uh, that there's a eternal subordination of the Father to the Son. I'm sorry, the other way around. The Son to the Father. Um, 
I think well-meaning people are, are saying this to show the dignity of role distinctions between men and women. But again, this is a good example where the fact that we have men and women reflects diversity in God and the fact that a man and a woman make one family. Uh, whether they have children or not, I should add, uh, a married couple reflects the glory of the triune God equally well with or without children. That's right. Um, children don't complete the picture of reflecting the Trinity. Um, so we want to be careful here. And in, in the zeal to maintain male and female distinctions, I think people have gone way too far in importing some sort of submission of the Son to the Father from all eternity. There may be a natural order of working uh, that the Son becomes incarnate and not the Father. That may reflect who God is. But don't fail to distinguish the fact that the Son is submissive and obedient to the Father as incarnate. That's right not as the eternal Son. And to do so would create a distinction of deity which the Bible doesn't recognize. And so we need to be careful. And, and I'm not going to say these men are um, apostate or, or heretics. I think they're well-meaning, good people. But they are uh, flirting with something that the Church with good reason has emphatically rejected over the centuries because it borders on heresy. It does, and I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really helpful point and, and ought to end all this discussion. I want to make Mark Jones happy, On too. Facebook and other places <laughs> that you can't really argue these issues. Um, <clears throat> that's a subject for another day. Um, the, the last practical thing is, <laughs> I mean, every time I read it, I'm just encouraged um, because of Christ's work of salvation for people uh, for individuals, and you say the work of the triune God should comfort you greatly, and and that's an understatement. You have three divine and almighty persons working for your good and your eternal salvation. Can, does it get better than? Can it get better than that? No, it's fantastic. <laughs> what a great. It, it, it comes right at the end of the book, and it just leaves you with such encouragement, realizing all of your weaknesses and all your failures, and you ha we all have them. Um, there are three persons in the one God working for my complete and total salvation, to working me and leading me to glory. Um, <laughs> it just doesn't get more encouraging than that. You know, and by the way, just as one little uh, aside, I mean, even as you're rehashing that from the book, I'm, I'm immediately drawn back to Romans 8. Mm. And how many of us know and love those words, if God is for us, who could be against us? Well, think about what Paul's saying. It's Christ who died. Why is God for us? Because Christ died for right. us. And what does that mean? Well, if you go back to the entire context of, of Romans 8, yeah, the, the God justifies. Who is he who condemns? How does God justify? Through his Son. How do we have the Son, and how do we hope in him in this life and in the life to come? Back to verses 11 through 13. Because the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Mm. And then you go to verse 26. Uh, the Spirit helps us in prayer because we don't know how to pray as we ought. Well, what is he talking about? We're supposed to be praying for the new heavens and the new earth, for our personal glorification and resurrection in Christ and the resurrection of the world around us, and we don't know adequately what we need to get there. 
So the Spirit enables us to do it, and the Spirit enables us to pray to that end. This is why all things work together for good, because we begin with election and predestination, move through our calling, our justification, our glorification, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. God is for us. Who can be against us? So because we come to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yep. That's Romans 8. It's a Trinitarian text. It's fantastic. You mentioned here at the end, if the work of all three persons of the Godhead cannot comfort you, then what can? Uh, you know, I, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just an average Christian, I, and, and, and I've always seen myself that way. And, and I wrestle with sin, like everybody listening to this program, like, Dr. McGraw wrestles with it. We live in a fallen world, but when we when we think about the reality of that idea of the comfort that comes from God, and if those the three persons of the Godhead can't comfort you, then there, there's nothing that will. And many people in this world look for comfort and peace uh, through all sorts of other means and never find it. But yet here, just like you've explained from Romans eight, and in, in this succinct way here in this end ending paragraph, um, really captured the whole essence of the Christian life and where our comfort really comes from. And then you go on to say, if you have weak faith, then go to the Spirit to sustain what little faith you have. If you are troubled by the prevalence of the sin that remains in you, then go to Christ who has removed both the guilt and power of sin for you. I'm reminded of the Puritan. I think it was a Puritan that said, every look at one, look at your sin, you should look 10, was it 10 times? I think the number changes every time I hear the quote. Yeah. But look 10 times to the cross, and that's what you're in a sense saying here. When you feel alone and abandoned and cast off the doubts that Satan whispers into your ear, Look to your Father in heaven who proved his love hmm, to you by sending two divine persons to give you the right and ability to call him your Father. What, what, what greater comfort can there be than that? Yeah. that this, this is the, the story of the Bible, uh, and, and it's just wonderful. Yeah. Well, and maybe just one, one last thing to add to that, and, and I'll, I'll close with this, is, is just um, I'm, I'm reminded of the great, Trinitarian statements that came out of the fourth century, both in terms mm-hmm. of strong theologians like uh, Athanasius and the um, the two Gregories and Basil yep. and and others, and and we think about uh, our modern world and the fact that American Christians are worried about: Are we going to have more severe persecution? I don't say uh, persecution because we already have that, and we have for some time. We just haven't recognized it when we're called to compromise God's commands, and we often do. Uh, that is persecution, and mm. and if that increases, then that's what many people are, are worried about. And, and how do we respond? What do we do? I think it's interesting when you look back at the, the fourth century where all these great Trinitarian statements came from and what we call the Nicene Creed. The church had gone through sporadic persecution for centuries. Mm. They had moved to a Christian emperor, and many Christians were worried what was going to happen tomorrow. Are we going to go back to persecution? Are we going to continue to establish Christianity? Uh, And then on top of that, the empire is starting to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And men like Augustine uh, write uh, their famous books on the Trinity while the Roman Empire is crumbling around them. And what that says to me is that these men recognize something that many people don't today. When you're persecuted, when your country is falling apart, when people are invading Mm. and uh, people are suffering, 
Where does the church need to go? The answer in the fourth and fifth century was the Trinity. Hmm. The answer today is self-help books and Christian dieting books. Yep. I mean, and, it's, a, it's, it's a great I mean, here's history teaching us something that we, we've long forgotten, I yeah. think. And, and in other words, this is, this is really asking the question, what could be more practical than God Right. at the end of the day? Yep. Fantastic. It's been a great discussion. I've, I've learned a lot. I always do. Um, talking with you. I want to be like you when I grow up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but uh, it, it's a very important subject. And, and so, you know, as we close this program, uh, let me encourage uh, elders out there, um, you know, pastors, um, these, these booklets are very, they're very easy to digest. Um, they're, as I said earlier, they're, they're packed. It's not as though just because they're concise doesn't mean they, they lack depth because they don't. Um, I've personally given out a number of them um, to various members of my congregation uh, to help them in some of these areas. And so just on a practical level, um, you know, they're, they're cheap and expensive and buy a bunch and, and just hand them out to members of your congregation. Uh, read them yourself, of course, and um, use them as a means to help your people um, on these subject, as we've already highlighted, the subject of the Trinity is extremely comforting and encouraging. And I tell you, it brings a great deal of peace to realize that in the middle of whatever may be going on, uh, three persons of the Godhead are working actively for my personal end and goal that they set in eternity past uh, for me um, to bring me into godliness and holiness and to reign and rule with Christ forever and eternity. And so... Use these booklets. They're they're the Cultivating Biblical Godliness series. They're put out by Reformation Heritage Books. You can go to their website. They're all there. I don't know how many there are now. There's got to be at least a dozen or more of them. Um, Twenty now. From yeah, from the and there's very wide ranging subjects from the Trinity to the Lord's Day to to self denial to reading your Bible and remembering what it says and practicing it. Um, Church membership. I'm not going to get them all, but go to the website Reformation Heritage Books. Just Google it, and um, you'll see the the list of them and, and grab a bunch and um, give them to your people and, and, and interact and, and, and create discussion on these subjects. They're very important and vital for the church and the Christian life today. So again, I think it's heritagebooks.com, but I don't remember exactly .org. off the top, top yeah. of my head. Is that right? .org. 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 Um, Dr. McGuire, before you run away, tell um, the listeners about the Meet the Puritans website. That's been revamped, redone, reworked, and, and, and running now. Yeah, uh, this is a site that's been adopted by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Uh, Danny Hyde out in Southern California, an old friend of mine, is is the editor. And um, we have a number of contributors, most of whom are doing twice a month, uh, which include myself and Danny and Joel Beakey um, and, and a number of others. We have a very useful group of, of authors there. All of them have expertise in, in Puritanism in mm, some mm-hmm. way. Obviously, it's a, a blog with short posts, and so we're aiming at devotion and really trying to uh, have a positive emphasis. The Alliance wanted a blog site that didn't have a whole lot of polemical issues, and something that the average Christian could just read and be edified by. Um, Every other Tuesday, my job is to contribute to uh, largely book reviews, so introducing people to good Puritan books and books about Puritans. Um, Lord willing, next year that'll increase, and I'll be doing it every week. 
So um, it's, it's a useful site, and Lord willing, we hope in the future as well to start hosting Puritan conferences hmm. in order to get people Great. excited about uh, reading their Bibles and loving Christ better by taking ideas from uh, good old dead men. So uh, that's the idea. Yeah, the, the the old expression, the only authors I read are the dead ones, but it's not 100% true. Obviously, I am re- read, read Dr. McGrath, very much alive. What's the website address? Uh, it's simply meetthepuritans.com. Meetthepuritans.com. So if you, if you have not utilized it and, and taken advantage of the resources there, then I would encourage you um, to do that as well. Dr. Murrah, thank you um, for the discussion. It's been very edifying and um, encouraging in many ways. And I always appreciate you being on. Um, mentioned you off here. I don't have to say much. And, and you just, you, you always take me where I wanted to go anyways. <laughs> so in some sense, you're hosting at the same time. But I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Let me tell everybody what's coming up on the program just really quickly. Um, next week, Dr. Piper will return for the what we have called the flagship program or the signature program of the podcast. Um, uh, he'll return for his uh, monthly installment of Faith and Practice. Uh, this is the program that you, the listener, basically run, control, direct uh, what we're going to talk about. Um, it's one of the easiest ones I do because I just read the questions and don't have to say a whole lot. Other than that, and uh, Dr. Piper um, looks at the questions ahead of time. He, he evaluates them and thinks through them very thoughtfully. And then he comes on the program and answers the questions of the listeners. And um, as I mentioned before, if you do send a question in and Dr. Piper chooses to use it, and I don't know of any per- question that we've ever received that was not used. Um, I'm sure it'll happen at some point in time, but it hasn't happened yet. But if it's used, you will receive a coupon discount code that'll knock $10 off whatever you buy at the Banner of Truth uh, online store. So we're, we're doing this for really two reasons, to promote the seminary and to, well, there's three, promote the seminary, of course, um, and to help instruct people in various areas of the Christian life and theology. And then also, at the same time, by virtue of the book discount, uh, put good books into the hands of those that listen. It's a very important thing. We don't read enough as it is now, and there's so much to read. So take advantage of that. That's next week. Um, Dr. Piper, re- Dr. Piper returns for that monthly installment of Faith and Practice. It's very widely listened to, and we are very thankful for the number of questions we get and the listeners to this program in general. So thank you for it very much. Without you, we would not have a podcast to do. So until next week, when Dr. Piper returns, we do thank you uh, for listening to this particular edition, a very encouraging conversation with Dr. Ryan McGraw. He's a full professor of systematic theology here at the seminary. We do thank you for listening, and God bless. God bless.